0: Guys, we have come to the end of our series that we've been in for the last four weeks called One Small Step. And we've been talking specifically about evangelism and how that plays out in our lives. You remember week one, we talked about the woman at the well and meeting Jesus and and how Jesus spun that into a very evangelistic scenario uh, and and what he did there. And we kind of pulled that apart and saw what Jesus did very simply. We talked the second week about uh, unity in evangelism. That is the churches. We are unified then we are at our best in sharing the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then last week, we talked about what? Anybody Remember? There we go. Thank you. We said it about 60 times last week in the sermon, make disciples. We talked about great commission and laid that on what Jesus has given to us. And today we have a very, uh, what I call powerful uh, end to the sermon series. We're going to talk today about advancing the kingdom. So as much as we are making disciples, as we are making disciples, as we are sharing the good news and getting it out there, what we are really doing is we are advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Can we uh, agree right now to never probably say this again, that we are not building the kingdom of Jesus Christ, all right? Even though we sing songs like build your kingdom here, we're asking Jesus to bu- you build your kingdom here. We're not building kingdoms, all right? When we are building kingdoms, we're at our worst, actually. We're building little kingdoms to ourselves and setting up little idols to ourselves. We're at our worst and we're not advancing God's kingdom. And so we're not building, but we are advancing God's kingdom. And it was a common practice in the ancient Roman Empire that the Romans, when they advanced into new territories and when they conquered new lands, they would send someone ahead. To announce the gospel, they actually used that word. They would send someone ahead to announce the gospel, the message that there was a new emperor, there was a new ruler, there was a new controller on the scene who was about to take over that land. And the inhabitants really had two choices, and you probably know what those two choices are. Bow before the ruler, all right, play along, all right, or um, you are going to kind of get just mowed over is basically what's going to happen. And that's what they did. You see, the word gospel itself is not really a distinctly Christian word. The Romans were using it, but it's the very reason that Jesus uses this word so many times in the gospels. It's used so many times in the New Testament is because people understood what gospel was about. Like, oh yeah, the Romans, they come in and they send someone ahead. They send a herald ahead to share the gospel, the news of what's about to happen. Last several weeks in our sermon series, One Small Step, it has been all about our taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to spaces and to places where it needs to be known and to tell people this is what we are really and truly telling people. A new king has arrived. There's a new king on the scene, a new controller who is on the scene. And unlike the the dread and the gloom and the terror that would often accompany a Roman message in ancient times, the message that we carry as proclaimers of Jesus Christ's gospel is one of hope, it's one of peace, and it's one of an everlasting reign of righteousness and truth in Jesus Christ. That sounds a little happier, right, than, hey, we're going to mow you over. No, no. Hope and peace and, and love and joy and truth and righteousness sounds so much better as it comes from Jesus Christ. Guys, when we spread the gospel, we are announcing the advance of God's rule in the world. We're telling people that God is coming to rule in their lives. And, and we may think to ourselves as I say that phrase, someone is coming to rule your life. Does that necessarily come off great and wonderful? It, it, it doesn't. Like we think to ourselves, that's a really weird message, by the way, Ryan but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't bring the message. Jesus brought the message and he said that. I'm here. I'm a new king on the scene and I'm coming to rule and come into your life because guess what? Here's the, here's the bottom line truth. We cannot run our own lives. We do a really, really bad job of it. We need Jesus to come into our lives, invade our lives in a way that he can rule and reign in the right way. Guys, the gospel is Jesus' way of telling people that death and evil, and Satan, it's out. He's off the scene. It's an announcement that the ways of darkness and the ways of captivity are giving way to light and to freedom. I love the way that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, puts it in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah 9, two, 4, and 7, he says this about this concept and this idea of a ruler. And this is a prophecy. It's a fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Can I have that up on the screen? Isaiah chapter 9, the first one there man, it's coming. And there we go. It says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. This is all talking all about Jesus. Next one. It says, For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. These are scriptures that we often read at Christmas time as we are expecting a king to come on the scene. The next one. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. And then he continues saying, listen to this. His government, Jesus' rule, Jesus' reign in this world over everything will never end. He will rule with fairness. He will rule with justice from the throne of his ancestor, David, for all eternity. If you didn't get it the first time, he is going to rule forever. And then ends by saying this. The, I love this phrase. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this Happen. That there will be a time that Jesus will come on the scene, and everybody, it tells us it's actually in the New Testament, that every knee will bow before Jesus and they will recognize that He is Lord of everything. So it's the very same thing in our lives. This is the very same thing as we take the gospel to other people's lives. Guys, we have two choices. Either we bend and we get on our knees now and we recognize Jesus for all he is, or guess what? There's going to come a day when he will make us recognize exactly who he is as we bend on our knees and worship who Jesus is. The gospel, it's a declaration of war. It really and truly is, as its core, at its essence, it is a declaration on war against Satan, against his kingdom, against darkness and evil, but it is also at the very same time a declaration of victory. That Christ, took on the enemy. And that in Jesus' death and resurrection, the enemy has already been defeated. Amen? Already. Guys, it's done. It's sealed. It's over. Satan's fate has been sealed. There's no question about it. By the time that we arrive on the scene in someone's life with the Gospel message, we go before Jesus, and we go before people with the Gospel message, the only decision that people have really left is whether they're going to join God's kingdom or they're going to remain under the rule of a defeated master whose only reward is death. Have you ever thought about that that way before? That as you come into people's life and you bring the gospel message to them, you're really presenting only two options to them. And those two options are exactly what I just said. Either you're going to Have your life come under and be submitted to a good and a perfect and a loving and a true and a righteous king, or you're going to continue to stay in the life that you've always been living. You're going to continue to stay in a kingdom that you've already been living in that is full of darkness. And the only result at the end of serving that king in that kingdom is death. That's That's as simple as you could put it in the gospel. That's what the gospel is really all about. And this declaration that Jesus makes and this declaration that Jesus expects for us to take as we advance his kingdom comes with the announcement that a new kingdom has arrived. And one of the key themes in the, all of the New Testament, but specifically in one book in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is the book of Matthew. Over 150 times in the New Testament, the concept or the idea of the kingdom is brought up. The kingdom of God is what it's sometimes called, and the kingdom of heaven is what it's sometimes called as well. 150 times is a pretty big deal in the New Testament. In one book in Matthew's Gospel, the concept of the kingdom is referenced more than 50 times. So of those 150 times, over 50 of them are found in the Gospel of Matthew. So what would you think, again, not having to be a rocket scientist, and I would come up to you and ask, What do you think the book of Matthew is really about? Anybody on that one? The kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. And so this morning I want to start our discussion in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16... If you'll remember as well, we kind of set this up for you. If you have your New Heights app, open it up to today's message, click on it, and it'll take you all the scripture I'll be reading today, all the main points I will be reading, all the quotes I'll be quoting, will be right there laid out for you so you'll be able to easily follow along. We start this morning with this this kingdom talk, this kingdom idea, the advancement of God's kingdom in this world that we live in today through our lives as we share the gospel. We start here in Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to highlight here in just a minute verse 18, and that's probably what's going to be up here on the screen. I want you to just leave that there. Daniel, I'm going to go back a little bit, and I'm going to start at verse 13. This is a very big moment in Jesus' ministry in the life of the uh, disciples, and it says in verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. You see, most people just thought that Jesus was just a really great teacher, he was just a really great prophet, and that's what they're echoing here. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And I don't think that Jesus just asked this question of his disciples, I think it's a question that is very pertinent for every single person in here today. Who, who do you say that Jesus is? and you're following him in your life, who do you say that Jesus is? And it says here in verse 16, Simon Peter, in all of his bravado that he usually has, he steps up and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replies, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because the father, my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And then verse 18 is the key verse here that I want to focus on for just a moment. And so Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my kingdom. I will advance my kingdom on this confession that you've just made, Peter. And I love this last little phrase and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I love what Jesus is saying in this moment here. All the powers of hell and other translations, it says the gates of Hades will not conquer the kingdom of God. This, this verse here that we read in, in verse 18 is usually treated in such a way that we are somehow promised. We get it in our minds that we are promised that Jesus will protect us from all of Satan's attacks. We're just like, we have a shield up on us and hey, once we confess Jesus, we are smooth sailing all the rest of the way in. Guys, does it work like that in life? Absolutely not. One of the biggest mistakes we make in the church sometimes is that we make people think that very thing. Guess what? Accept Jesus and all will go well with the rest of your life. It doesn't always work like that. Actually, it rarely works like that. It works the direct opposite of that. And it's a big disservice that we do to people when we don't tell them. When you choose Jesus, you're choosing a lot of nasty stuff behind it. But it's so worth it in the end. And while we certainly do enjoy a certain protection in our efforts to advance the kingdom, do you see what this verse, what verse 18 in Matthew 16 is really actually saying? I want you to look at it again. It's it's not about our protection, but here's what it really and truly is about. It's about Satan's Inability to keep us from attacking His kingdom. I want to to read it again. Listen, that's exactly what it's saying. All the powers of hell will not conquer it. All the gates of Hades, all the powers of hell will not be able to keep you out as you are advancing the kingdom. It has nothing to do with about, about our protection, about Satan not being able to advance on us. It has to do with his inability to keep us out. His inability to, to do damage to God's kingdom. I, mean, I want you to think about it this way. Do you, do you know what a gate is designed to do? What's a gate designed to do? Any ideas? Oh, it's only got one thing, one purpose. Keep things out. All right? Yeah, I guess you could make the argument too it's to keep things in. All right, we're not going to go that route. <laughs> Gates really and truly at their core are to keep things out all right? Are gates an offensive weapon? I mean, do you see people ever in wartime, in the history of all war, marching out with their gates in the battle? Like, I'm going to take you with my gate. they never do that. It'd be be stupid, number one, all right? It looks stupid, all right? Nobody carries gates out because they're not an offensive weapon. They're only solely defensive. Gates don't fight. Gates don't move. They have no ability to advance. And while Satan and his kingdom have the real ability to inflict casualty and to inflict damage on God's people, it really has no ability to touch the kingdom of God. Boundaries and and Satan's reign are limited. They are are vulnerable to the attacks of an advancing kingdom. Gates are fixed. Gates are stationary. They're only designed to keep people out. And it is no different with the so-called gates of hell. What's very interesting about this location that they're in, and I think it has everything to do with why Jesus takes them to this place and why Jesus says what he says at this place, he goes and he goes to Caesarea Philippi and he goes specifically to a place where at Jesus' time, as he's probably talking to the disciples, they had a massive temple to a God named Pan. God was the, uh, Pan was the God of the underworld, which gives the, the reason why he calls this place the gates of hell. Guys, unspeakable things took place at this place in Caesarea Philippi. In fact, if you would look at pictures, and you probably look them up on Google, and I actually was just talking to Joel, who was our presenter here yesterday. He's been to Israel seven times, said he's seen Caesarea Philippi over and over again. He says, it's a cave that's recessed way back into this big rock cliff face. And at the back of it, it has natural redness to it, but it also had redness at Jesus' day because what people would do is they would take their children there and they would sacrifice the children there to to Pan himself. And so do you see what Jesus is beginning to say as he's talking to his disciples here in Caesarea Philippi? The gates of hell, actually just a little bit away from that too, uh, there was a a location where it was believed that in the Old Testament when when the Israelites set up a, a, a temple or an altar to Baal, it was a massive temple to Baal, and they called that place also too the gates of hell because unspeakable, nasty, horrible things happened at that location. Guys, the gates of hell, the powers of Satan, all the evil, all the darkness, all the sin, all the death in this world are strongholds and fortresses, but they are not impervious to an advancing force that has the power of God at the tip of his spear. Let me just say it very easily, guys. Every one of you right now are weapons in God's arsenal in the kingdom of God. Every one of us are called to march out. We talked about that last week. We don't march out to be warmongers and take people by force. We go to take out a message that has every bit of positivity and love and peace to it. But we are the tip of God's spear as we're going out into this world, advancing God's kingdom. We have the real ability through God's power to do damage by storming the gates. One of the greatest pictures that I have of this idea is that, that, that not even the gates of hell will sin against God's kingdom. Has anybody seen the Lord of the Rings movies? You've seen the return of the king. In the return of the king, there's a, there's a part at the very end of it where the, uh, the I guess you would call them the allies, the good guys, all right? They all are lining up at the black gate where all of, there's an enemy called Sauron and he's controlling all of these people with darkness and with evil. And you see him look at each other, all the good guys look at each other and they just charge out in battle. And do you know what the enemy does? Nothing. They just stand there. Do you know what the gates of this big, mighty fortress does? Nothing. It just stands there. And they go and they attack. And in the end, like, guess what? Every, the good guys win, all right? But it is the best image that I have in my mind And thinking about this concept of that not even the powers of hell, all the darkness, all the evil in the world will ever be able to conquer God's kingdom. And here in Matthew, what Jesus is really saying is that when we are faithful and when we fully understand who Jesus is, what we have at our disposal as his followers in his name, not only will we be defended, but we will be on the offensive. We will advance the kingdom of God into Satan's territories, into the most heavily fortified strongholds, even a place like Caesarea Philippi. I told you, I believe that Jesus specifically picks this place here. Because in Jesus' day, this was the darkest place that you could ever imagine. If Jesus was going to take somebody to a really dark, evil, nasty, oppressive place, Caesarea Philippi, the temple of the god Pan was it. And I believe what Jesus is saying to the guys, this is just my interpretation of all of it, this is my paraphrase of it, is my kingdom cannot be kept out of a place, off of a rock, in places and spaces like Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is saying, even in a place like this, guys, my kingdom will stand and never be defeated. Do you guys know some dark places, some dark spaces in your world, in our world? Jesus can build his kingdom there. Absolutely, without question, without a doubt. Guys, here's what we just need to believe that he can do that. We need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has all the power at his disposal. We talked about that last week, that Jesus comes to the guys and says, I have been giving, given all authority in heaven and earth. Do you know what that means? I have all the power available to me and I can use it at my disposal whenever I want to, however I want to. And the crazy thing, do you know what he does? This is nutty to me. He gives it to us. Which I personally do myself I'm like, Jesus, that's not a great idea. Because you know what happens when we have all the power of Jesus at our fingertips? Possibilities are endless. But you know what happens? I don't think we really believe that. And so what we do is we sit and we just cower. We just retreat. We just curl up and we stay comfortable because we really don't believe that we have the power of Jesus at our disposal. J.D. Greer is a pastor in North Carolina. He says this, about the concept of advancing the kingdom of God. It so says Jesus didn't promise that he will, would enable us to survive a slow retreat in our culture. And he continues saying he promised, and what he promised is that if we'd be faithful, such a key word, he'd let us advance deeper and deeper into enemy territory. What does scripture constantly tell us? It tells us in Ephesians, our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is not with people in this world. Our battle is with Satan and all the darkness and all the enemies that he has uh, surrounded himself with. Another theologian, J.C. Ryle, says this about the concept of advancing the kingdom. I I love this. This Guys, this is one of those moments when you read this quote and you're like, yeah, that's right. We have that power. He says, Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted. They may be oppressed. They may be imprisoned. They may be beaten. They may be beheaded. They may be burned. And a number of other things. And he continues saying, But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It rises from the ashes. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Nero's have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then guess what happens to them? They're off the scene. They pass away and they go to their own place. The true church outlives them all, all and sees them buried each in his own turn. The church is an anvil. I love this. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world. And then he ends by saying, and it will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning, but it is never consumed. I love those quotes. Guys, you know what I take from Matthew 16, 18? You know what I take from quotes like this? You know what I take from what all of the rest of Scripture tells us? I want you to believe this very truly, guys. We are unstoppable. Nothing will stand against us if we stand in the power of Jesus Christ. We know this because Jesus has given all authority to His church. I already mentioned that last week in Matthew 28. He says those very words. I have been given authority, all authority, and so I'm giving it to you. If you need further evidence and proof of that, in the very same time that he's talking and giving the Great Commission, we switch over to Acts 1-8. He's in the very same location, and he says this in Acts 1-8. You will receive Power, my power through the spirit and you will be my witnesses in this world all authority has been given to me and now I'm giving every bit of it to you we just need to believe We extend and we advance God's rule and his authority based on the authority that he has given to us. This extension, this advancement of the kingdom happens most visibly and most apparently in our spreading and our sharing of the gospel. That's why Jesus uses so many different images. The best one that I think that he has is that as we go out, all we are doing is just scattering seeds. There's scattering seeds to advance the kingdom. That's why we've talked about this concept, this idea of one small step, one small kernel. One small thing is all it takes for the kingdom of God to root in and to become something massive. Do you need further evidence that we are unstoppable? Do you need further evidence that the kingdom of God is unstoppable? We're already in Matthew. Just flip back a few chapters of Matthew chapter 11. Again, I'm going to focus specifically on verse 12 here in just a bit, but I want to come and get some context here. So I'm going to start in verse 11. So as I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist, yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. And then there's this really weird thing that he throws here in verse 12. Like we would read it and we're like, why is he talking about this? He's talking about John the Baptist. And then he says, from the time of John the Baptist... And when he began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. I love that phrase and really want to specifically focus on that phrase, forcefully advancing. And again, we would look at it and we would be like, why in the world is Jesus throwing this in here? On the surface, it makes no sense of why he just throws this little line in here. It's a big interruption, seemingly, in what Jesus is saying. He's talking about John the Baptist, and then he's talking about the kingdom of heaven and it forcefully advancing into the world. And admittedly, this has been a very difficult verse for scholars for like years and decades to be able to figure out what in the world is Jesus saying. But there's one key, I feel, to understanding exactly what Jesus is saying about the kingdom and about advancing the kingdom. And it, it comes in understanding the word that he uses here for advanced or forced, and I want you to just hold on for a minute, all right? I'm going to give just a little bit. I'm, I'm just going to lightly dip our toes right into the Greek world, okay? We're going to do a Greek word, and we're going to do a Hebrew word. And you don't really have to remember them unless you want to, but they are very important. The Greek word that he uses here in Matthew chapter 11 for forced or for advance is the Greek word biatso. You want to say that one with me? Biazzo. It's just fun to say, all right? Biazzo really means to, to violently explode, to, to blow out. Now to really get where we're going this morning and talking about this, the equivalent to the word biazo in the Old Testament in Hebrew is the word Peretz. Can you guys say Peretz? There you go, Peretz, which means dynamite, explode, or to break out. I want you to listen to what it sounds like in context to see if you can hear better what this word in Matthew 11 really means. In Isaiah chapter 54, verses 2 through 4, here is what it says. God is telling his people, enlarge your house, build an addition, spread out your home, spare no expense. For you will soon be, and the key word here is bursting. You know what that word is? Peretz. It's the equivalent to Beazzo in the New Testament that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 11. You will soon be bursting at the seams, and he continues on and says, "This your descendants will occupy other nations and resettle in ruined cities. Fear not is where I'm going to end in that one. I want you. To, I wanted you to hear where that word falls and how it's used. If you if you were kind of listening there, what do you get a sense of? You get a sense of at least I do of blessing." and prosperity and success and advancement. Enlarge your home. Build on addition. Spare no expense, he says. You are going to be bursting at the seams. That's how I'm going to bless you insanely, Israel. And then later, the people of God, us, the church. But where this really all comes into focus is there is a prophecy in the book of Micah, which I would imagine that some of you have probably not even cracked the book of Micah in your Bible. It's a short little book in the Old Testament towards the end of it. In Micah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, the prophet there talks to us about something that if we were just to read it would probably be very confusing to us. But it says in Micah 2 12, 13, and I want you to catch this word again, Peretz. It says, Someday, O Israel, I will gather you, I will gather the remnant of Who are left? I will bring you together again, like a sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out, explode, bust out, burst, and lead you out of exile, out through the gates of the enemy cities, back to your own land. Your your king will lead you; the Lord Himself will guide you. All right, I'm prepared for this. This is so cool, guys. By the way. Put on your seatbelts because I'm going to walk you through something. Why the word choice that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 11 is so very important. Beato, that connects to Peretz. And Micah the prophet paints a picture of God gathering His people Israel together like a shepherd that would pin in His sheep and, and corral them in a makeshift corral. And you know what happens when you get a whole lot of animals together in a very small space? Do they like it? they do not. All they want to do is to get out and to be free. And so this enclosure is crowded with all these people waiting and anxious to get out. And this leader he calls here in Micah chapter two, it's actually called a breachmaker, all right, is a person who would make a hole in a wall or would open up a gate. It's the Hebrew word paretz. This breach maker, this leader, kicks open the gate. Actually, what he does is he blows out a hole in the wall so that the sheep can push, the people can shove and explode out of the gate in their eagerness to get out. And in Jewish interpretation, the breach maker, the leader, and the king that's mentioned later in verse 13 are two totally different people. They're not to be mixed up. The one who went before and kicked down the gate to start the stampede was always believed to be, in Jewish thought, Elijah. That's why Elijah was so revered. Elijah has to come before the Messiah comes, is what people would think. The king who also passes through the gate and leads the flock out of the fold is the Messiah, the branch of the son of David. And because of all other Old Testament prophecies I don't have time to look up and show you, the Jews knew that Elijah had to come first and then the Messiah would show up. And here's what happens with Jesus. If Jesus is referring to this passage of Scripture in Micah chapter 2 and its interpretation, and I fully believe that it's exactly what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 11, what he is really saying is that the kingdom of heaven is breaking forth. The kingdom of heaven is breaking out. It is exploding and all the people of his kingdom are breaking out of their bondage. They're breaking out of their slavery. They're breaking out of the hold that sin has on them and they are laying a hold of that and they are finding liberty and they are finding freedom. And furthermore, what Jesus would actually be saying as he's talking about John the Baptist here in Matthew chapter 11 is that John the Baptist, not Elijah, is the breachmaker. He's the one that comes before the Messiah He actually says it a little bit later. He he references and calls and equates John the Baptist with Elijah, if you want to read that just a few verses later. He opened John the Baptist. He had opened and prepared the way for the king, Jesus himself. And without actually having to say what Jesus is saying here and alluding to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Micah passage is referring to and talking about. Jesus is the king who will lead the sheep through the gate. He is the king who will rule and reign. He is the leader. He is the Messiah who will cause his kingdom to advance into every enemy territory. Pretty cool, right? It doesn't just stop there. Ready? I got more. If you go all the way back to Genesis 38, and this is what's the coolest part to me, if that wasn't cool to you, then you're just not awake, I guess. Guys, here's the deal. God really one-ups himself all the time in Scripture. The connection with explosiveness and breaking out doesn't just stop there. It goes all the way back to Genesis 38 to a woman who was named Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of Judah who has twin boys back in Genesis 38. And the story goes this way in Genesis 38. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out, of his, uh, reached out his hand. Continue on. The midwife grabbed it, tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing this one came first. But here's what happened. That child pulled his hand back and out came his brother. What the midwife exclaimed. And then listen to what she says. How did you break out? So he was named Perez. And that's how we pronounce it. But do you know what the actual word is there? Perez. Do you know that Perez actually became the head of the clan of Judah, who would later bring us David, who would eventually bring us who? Jesus. Guys, here's the deal. Here's why I say the kingdom cannot be stopped. Jesus has dynamite in his DNA. Do you know it furthermore when he says, I have authority, I give authority to you. Do you know what we have in our DNA? Dynamite, bursting out, breaking forth, advancing in every part of Satan's territory. We have that as part of us. Guys, if we know that, that's why I just walked you through all of that so that you would know that without a doubt. You have explosiveness about you. And if we know that, where in the world is our passion? Most of us walk around this world, we're like, whatever, I don't care. So apathetic, so downcast, so beaten down. Guys, you are explosive. We are explosive as the church. Jesus was not, I love how somebody said this, Jesus was not the pussycat of Judah. What was he? The lion of Judah. It's in his nature. It's in ours to be passionate and to be explosive for the things of the kingdom. Guys, we are unstoppable. I love the story that's told about President Lincoln during the Civil War. In the midst of the Civil War, when the the Union Army had finally pushed back the Confederates and regained their ground, one of Lincoln's generals burst into the room into Lincoln's office and said, President Lincoln, I am pleased to tell you that we have finally pushed the enemy out of our territory and back into his own And Lincoln looked around and he said to his other generals in the room, when will my generals learn that the whole country is our territory? Likewise, Jesus is not content to be Lord of a small subsection of this world or to only be the head of the church. He makes it known that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and everything around that. He's running the entire show. He doesn't want just a fraction of your heart and your life. He wants your whole life. He wants your whole will. He wants your whole heart. And because of the Jesus and the promise that he gives us, we are unstoppable. We should never be satisfied with the lostness that we see in our community, that we see in our world. We are explosive and unstoppable. This whole world is Jesus, and he is going to set it right. But I want to just come in for a moment And again, not give the false impression. We just go out there and do whatever we want and we are never untouchable. Guys, we are unstoppable, but we are not untouchable. Here in Matthew 16, again, going back to that, I want to read a little bit more of Scripture. Jesus basically, it says here in my Bible, Jesus predicts his death. And what does Peter do in a moment that can only be described as like Peter's one of Peter's worst moments? Peter says, oh, Jesus, you are never going to do that. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Bad day. That's a bad day whenever Jesus calls you Satan. Peter objects and he challenges the concept of a Messiah who would suffer. And in this, he touches on one of the biggest myths of kingdom life. And here's what so many people think about the kingdom, who what so many people think about Jesus, that Jesus came so that I would not have to suffer or sacrifice anything. Guys, Jesus never said that when we, we come to him and we come to him and we place our faith in that he will put an end to all of our problems. I've already said that this morning. In fact, identifying with Jesus often intensifies our problems. It often intensifies our pains. It often intensifies our struggle, if I'm going to be totally honest this morning. Guys, the kingdom advances through some measure of suffering and sacrifice. Jesus says over here, after Peter says, no, you're not going to do that. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You're only seeing it from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. And he says to his disciples and starts to teach them, if you want to be my follower, you must turn away from everything. You must sacrifice everything. You must take up your cross and you're going to follow me. Guys, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a whole lot of sacrifice and it sounds like a whole lot of suffering. And he says this to Peter. Peter. And we would say, that we'd look at that and we'd go like, Ryan, that's not an easy message. That's not an easy sell. It's not, guys, but guess what it is? It is the truth. That's why I said last week that this call to be a proclaimer, to advance God's kingdom is not a comfortable call. It is a costly, costly demand. His promise is that in the heart of these problems, he's working something in your life that will produce fruit, not only in you, but it will produce uh, fruit in other people too. Jesus says to Peter here in Matthew chapter 16, I'm not going to save you from suffering. I'm going to save you through your suffering. I'll save the world through the brutality and the suffering of a cross and now you must take that cross and you must carry it every single day of your lives. That's why Peter talked about suffering so much. It's why he says in his first letter, he talks about trials and that we have to go through trials. We have to go through suffering so that we can be refined and we can be made the way that Christ wants us to be. But here's the question of everything that I've talked about this morning. Knowing that, because I could have just stopped and like, Gu- guys, guess what? We are untouchable. And everybody would walk out of me like, yeah, that's right. And everybody felt really great. And then I, as the dummy, had to come in and say, guess what? You're going to, have to suffer for it and sacrifice for it. I'd be like, oh, that doesn't sound so great, Ryan. But, guys, when when we know that, and I've laid it out pretty clearly to you, and as we know that, and as we discover the truth that Jesus doesn't just swoop in as a rescue hero to keep you from feeling any sort of discomfort or tension or pain, knowing that, here's the question Will you still follow him? The apostles did. Countless others did because they believed so strongly in the message of Jesus Christ. More importantly, they believed in the messenger. Jesus Christ, that they were willing to advance the kingdom at all costs. But you'll remember in John chapter 6, I'm not going to read all of it, but Jesus comes to a point in his ministry in John 6 towards the end of it, where it says that many people did desert him. John 6 Starting at verse 60 and just kind of, like I said, going jump around here, says many of the disciples said this is very hard to understand. How can anybody accept what you're saying? Jesus is talking about people eating his flesh and drinking his blood and people like that's it, We're, we're done. This guy is getting kind of wackadoo on us here. And it says in verse 66, at this point in Jesus' ministry, many of his disciples turned away and they deserted him. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks, are you also going to leave me? Are you also going to abandon and desert me? And, 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 and Peter says this, which honestly is not the most inspiring quote that Peter could have ever had, because he says this Where are we going to go? And, like, think about that. If you're Jesus, you're like, Give me a really good thing here, Peter. And he's like, Are you going to leave me, Peter? And he says, I got nowhere else to go. Got nothing else to do. It's like, That wasn't what I was looking for, Peter, but we'll go with it. So the Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Another quote from J.D. Greer. I love how he says it about how Peter responds in this moment. Peter literally is saying this. I am frustrated by you, Jesus. I don't like what you're saying, Jesus. But listen to this. I think we so often do this in our lives. Jesus, I don't like this. It's so uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, I'd rather have you and be mad than anything without you. Don't we seriously get frustrated at Jesus sometimes? Like, Jesus, I don't want to do this. Jesus, I don't want to go there. Jesus, I don't want to have to say this. But darn it, I'll stay with you and be mad at you because it's better than being away from you. Guys, a casual observer is just someone who follows Jesus to get something, to build their own kingdom. A follower or a disciple is someone who would leave anything else just to have Jesus and just to advance His kingdom. There was a man back in the 1700s. His name was William Carey, and he was known as the father of the missions movement and the modern mission movement. And he went on and he preached in the 1700s towards the end of it. And I'm not going to tell you all about his sermon, but I'm going to tell you what he boiled his sermon down to. It was this. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And he says this. I'm going to read this quote here. Is there one before that? Or is that the first one? Okay. When I left England, he says, my hope of India's conversion. He had gone to India at the end of the 1700s with all the fire and all the passion of a missionary. And he did nothing. He had no conversions at all. When I left England, my hope of India's conversion was very strong. Continuing on. But among so many obstacles, it would die unless God upheld it. Well, he says, I have God. And his word is true. And though the superstitions of the heathen, he's going into the Indian continent, were a thousand times stronger than they are. And the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse. Though I were deserted by all, though I were persecuted by all, I went through everything. Yet my faith, fixed on the sure word, would rise above all the obstructions and overcome every trial. And he says this, God's cause will triumph. Do you know how long William Carey labored in India before he saw one single convert? Seven years. Could you imagine that? Going to a continent you know nothing about in a land that's very unfamiliar and you would say to yourself, I have all the passion and all the will to do this and for seven stinking years, nothing happens. Until after the seventh year, they have their first convert. He continues on and saying in another quote where he is talking, continue on, go past this quote. I'm just going to go by this one. I'll tell you when to stop. Just keep going. Oh, there we go. Go back. He says this about this man on this Indian continent the first convert they had. He was only one, but a continent was coming behind him. Guys, do you actually know where the gospel is as strong as today and is growing the most? India. It, 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 by the thousands, tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands, of people are coming to Christ. So the divine grace which chained one Indian's heart could obviously change a hundred thousand. Do we believe that? Do we truly believe the gospel has all the power in the world to change not just one life, not just tens of thousands of lives, but hundreds and millions and billions of people's lives? Came across this quote today. It says, many today have almost given up on the church and by default they've given up on the kingdom of God have given up on it having any sort of impact or experiencing any sort of success, let alone advancing and taking back ground that is God's. The mission has been lost and we're all simply waiting for rescue while we sink deeper into isolation and retreat. That's the story of the church today. It doesn't have to be the story of the church today. That's not always been the case. Men like William Carey, the first disciples, have showed as much, and I would argue that's the mindset and should be the mindset today. We should be taking back pieces and parts of God's kingdom, claiming them for the rightful owner, Jesus Christ Himself. Guys, rather than believing that church's best and greatest days are somewhere off in the distant future or they're somewhere in the distant past, what if we believed like the early disciples? What if we believed like William Carey himself that the gospel could be victorious, that the gospel could completely defeat Satan right here today, now? I hope that you believe that to be the case. And the question that I come to at the end of all things is this. Why are you following Jesus? Why would you consider following Jesus? Are you following Jesus or would you follow Jesus just because of something you think that Jesus can give to you? Or are you willing to follow him? Would you follow Jesus because you want him more than anything? And you'd be willing to give up everything just to have him. And maybe you think to yourself, I can't amount to much. Maybe you don't know if you quite buy into this Jesus talk and this Jesus kingdom stuff. But I love the way that Mark chapter four says it about the kingdom. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. And I kind of want to end with this. How can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all the garden plants. It grows long branches and birds can make its nest in its shade. Guys, the gospel has all the power in the world to make this God's kingdom. It may start small, may start in a very insignificant way. The kingdom, guys, though, is unstoppable. You are unstoppable. So I would say, just like William Carey did back in the 1700s, get out there. Believe. Believe in a great God and believe great things for God. And guys, sometimes all it will take is an ounce of faith and one small step.